One of the first things I think young people, especially nowadays, should learn how to do is see for yourself and uh, listen for yourself and think for yourself and then you can come to an intelligent decision for yourself. But if you form the habit of uh, going by what uh, you hear others say about someone or going by what others think about someone instead of going and searching that thing out for yourself and seeing for yourself, you will be walking west when you think you're going east. You'll be walking east when you think you're going west. So this generation, especially because our people, uh, have a burden upon themselves more so than at any other time in history. Uh, the most important thing we can learn how to do today is think for ourselves. It's good to keep wide open ears and listen to what everybody else has to say. But when you come to make a decision, you have to weigh all of what you heard uh, on the, of its own and place to where it belongs. And then come to a decision for yourself and you'll never regret it. But if you form the habit of uh, taking what someone else says about a thing without checking it out for yourself, you'll find that other people will have you hating your own friends and loving their enemies. And this is uh, one of the things that our people are beginning to learn today, that it's very important to think out a situation for yourself. If you don't do it, then you'll always be maneuvered into actually, you'll never fight your enemy, but you will find yourself fighting uh, your own self. And I think our people in this country are the best examples of that because many of us want to be nonviolent. I myself would go for nonviolence if it was consistent, if it was intelligent. Everybody was going to be nonviolent. And if we were going to be nonviolent all the time, I'd say, okay, let's get with it. We'll all be nonviolent. But I don't go along, and I'm just telling you how I think. I don't go along with, with any kind of nonviolence unless everybody's going to be nonviolent. If they make the Ku Klux Klan nonviolent, I'll be nonviolent. If they make the White Citizens Council nonviolent, I'll be nonviolent. But as long as you got somebody else not being nonviolent, I don't want anybody coming to me any kind of nonviolent talk. And, uh, uh, and I don't think that it is fair to tell our people to be nonviolent unless someone is out there making the Klan and the Citizens Council and these other groups also be nonviolent. Now, I'm not criticizing those here who are nonviolent. I think everybody should do it the way they feel is best. Uh, and I congratulate anybody who can be nonviolent in the face of all that kind of action that I read about in that part of the world. But I don't think that you will find the upcoming generation of our people, especially those who have been doing some thinking, who will go along with any form of nonviolence unless nonviolence is going to be practiced all the way around. If, uh, if, if the leaders of the nonviolent movement can go into the white community and teach nonviolence, good. I go along with that. But as long as I see them teaching nonviolence only in the black community, then we can't go along with that. We think we believe in equality. And equality means you have to put the same thing over here that you put over here. And if just black people alone are going to be the ones who are nonviolent, then it's not fair. We throw ourselves off guard. In fact, we disarm ourselves and make ourselves defensive. The organization of Afro American Unity is a, a non religious group of black people in this country who believe that the problems confronting our people in this country need to be reanalyzed and uh, a new approach uh, designed toward trying to get a solution. And studying the problem, we recall that prior to 1939 in this country, uh, all of our people in the north, south, east, and west, no matter how much education we had, were segregated. We were segregated in the north just as much as we were segregated in the south. And even right now, today, there's as much segregation in the north as there is in the South. There's some worse segregation right here in New York City than there is in Macomb 
silly, but up here they're subtle and tricky and deceitful. And they make you think that you are, you got it made when you haven't even begun to make it yet. So, uh, realize that prior to 1939, that our people were in a very menial, uh, position, position. And most of us were waiters and porters and bellhops and janitors and waitresses and things of that sort. And it was not until, uh, war was declared in Germany by Hitler and America became involved in a manpower shortage Plus, uh, she, she became involved in a manpower, she was faced with a manpower shortage, and they got to her uh, factory plus her time. And it was only then that the black man in this country was permitted to make a few strides forward. It was never out of some kind of moral enlightenment or moral awareness on the part of Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam only let the black man take a step forward when he himself had his back to the wall. Uh, in uh, Michigan, where I was growing up at that time, I recall that the best jobs in the city for blacks were waiters out at the country club. And in those days, if you had a job waiting table in the country club, you had it made. Or if you had a job at the state house, having a job at the state house didn't mean that you were a clerk or something of that sort. You had the two times stand in the state house. And just by being in there where you could be around all these big politicians, that made you a big shot Negro. You were trying to choose. But you were a big shot Negro because you were around big shot white people and uh, you could bend their air and get up next to them. And you all, all kinds of those days were chosen to be the voice of the Negro community. Now, and also right at that time, 1939, uh, 40-41, they weren't drafting Negroes in the Army nor the Navy. The Negro couldn't join the Navy in 1940 or 41 in this country. He couldn't join. They wouldn't take a, a black man in the Navy. They would take him if they wanted and make him a cook. But he couldn't just go and join the Navy. And he, and he couldn't just go, I don't think he could just go and join the Army. Now, they weren't drafting him when the war first started. And this is what they thought of you and me in those days. For one thing, they didn't trust us. And they said that if they put us in the Army and bring us on how to use rifles and other things, that we might do that some time to take that place out. So, and we would have. Any thinking man knows what time to do that. And uh, a man doesn't, he has to have someone else to choose his target, and he's not thinking for himself. They're doing the same for him. So, uh, it was only when the uh, country, got, when the Negro leader, same way, the same type of Negro leader, hate to say Negro leader in those days, that we have today. When the, when the Negro leaders saw all the white soldiers uh, being drafted and taken into the army and dying on the battle, the Negroes were dying, so they weren't being drafted. The Negro leaders come up and said, he, got to die too. We want to be drafted too. And we demand that you take us in there and let us die for our country. This is what the Negro leaders said back in 1940. I remember April of Randolph was one of the Negroes in those days. Who said it? He's one of the big six right now. So, uh, and this is why he's one of the big six right now. So, uh, when, uh, they started drafting Negro soldiers then, and then they started letting Negroes get into the nation. But not until Hitler and Tojo and the foreign powers were strong enough to bring pressure upon this country so it headed back to the wall and it needed us. And at that same time, they let us work in factories. Up until that time, we couldn't work in the factories. I'm talking about the North as well as the South. And uh, when they let us work in the factories, we begin, at, at first, when they let us in, we could only be janitors. Then after a year or so passed by, they let us work on machines. We became machinists. Got a little skill. And as we got a little more skill, uh, we made a little more money, which enabled us to live in a little better neighborhood. When we lived in a little better neighborhood, we went to a little better school, got a little better education, and could come out and get a little better job. So the cycle was broken somewhat 
But the cycle was not broken because of some kind of sense of moral responsibility on the part of the government. No. The only time that cycle was broken even to a degree was when world pressure was brought to bear from the United States government and they were forced to look at the Negro and then they didn't look at us as human beings. They just put us into their system and let us advance a little bit farther because it served their interests. But they never let us advance a little bit farther because they were interested in our interests or interested in us as human beings. Any of you who have a knowledge of history, social political science, all the economy, and race relations, all you have to do is take what I'm telling you and go back and do some research on it and you'll have to admit that this is true. It was uh, then after, during the while that, uh, during the time that Hitler and Tojo, Japanese emperor, were able to make war with this country and put pressure upon them, Negroes in this country advanced a little bit. Uh, at the end of the war with uh, Germany and Japan, then Joe Stalin was a threat. Joe Stalin and, and communist Ru uh, Russia were a threat. And during that period, we made a little bit more attention. Now, the point that I'm making is this. Never at any time in the history of our people in this country have we made advances or advancement or made progress in any way just based upon the internal goodwill of this country or based upon the internal activity of this country. We have only made advancement in this country when this country was under pressure from forces above and beyond its control. So the internal sense the internal moral consciousness of this country is bankrupt. It hasn't existed since they just brought us over here and made plays out of it. They can pick up on the conversation and make it appear that they have our good interests at heart, but when you study it every time, no matter how many steps they take us forward, it's like we're standing on a, what you call that thing, a treadmill. The treadmill is moving backwards faster than we're able to go forward in this direction. We're not even standing still. We're walking uh, forward at the same time going backwards. So I say that because the organization of Afro-American history is studying the, uh, the process of this so-called progress during the past 20 years. We realize that the only time the black man in this country is given any kind of recognition or shown any kind of favor at all, or even uh, his voice is listened to, is when America is afraid of outside pressure or when she's afraid of her image abroad. And so we can see that as long as we sat around and carried on our struggle at a level or in a manner that involved only the, uh, the goodwill of the internal forces of this country, we would continue to go backwards as we know real meaningful changes made. So, uh, the organization of Access for American Unity saw that it was necessary to uh, expand the problem and the struggle of the black man in this country until it went above and beyond the jurisdiction of the United States. For the past 15 years, the struggle of the black man in this country was labeled as a civil rights struggle. And as such, it remained completely within the jurisdiction of the United States. You and I could get no kind of benefit whatsoever other than that which would be forthcoming from Washington, D.C., which meant in order for it to be forthcoming from Washington, D.C., all of the congressmen and the senators would have to agree to it. But the congressmen, the most powerful congressmen and the most powerful senators were from the South. They were, and they were from the South because they had seniority in Washington, D.C. And they had seniority because our people in the South, where they came from, couldn't vote. They didn't have the right to vote. So, we saw that we were up against uh, a hopeless battle internally 
we felt the necessity of getting allies on the world at the world level, or from abroad, from all over the world. And so immediately we realized that as long as the struggle was a civil rights struggle within under the jurisdiction of the United States, we would have no real allies or real support. We, just, we, we decided that the only way to make the problem uh, rise to the level where we could get world support was to uh, take it out of the civil rights uh, label, or take it away from the civil rights label, and put it in the human rights label. It's not an accident that the, the struggle of the black man in this country for the past 10 or 15 years has been called a struggle for civil rights. Because as long as you're struggling for civil rights, what you are doing is asking these racist segregationists who control Washington, D.C., and they control Washington, D.C. They control the federal government through these committees. And as long as this thing is a civil rights struggle, you're asking uh, it at a level where your uh, so-called benefactor is actually someone from the worst part of this country. And you can, you can only go forward to the degree that they let you. But when you, uh, when you, when you get involved in a struggle for human rights, it's completely out of the jurisdiction of the United States government. You take it to the United Nations, and then when you any problem that is taken to the United to the United Nations, the United States has no say so on it whatsoever because in the UN she only has one vote, and in the UN the the, the uh, largest block of votes is the African uh, continent of Africa has the largest block of votes in any continent on this earth, and the continent of Africa coupled with the Asian bloc and the Arab bloc comprises the uh, over two-thirds of the UN forces and they're the Vox nations. That's the only court that you can go to today and get your own people, the people who look like you, on your side is in the United Nations. And this could have been done 15 years ago. It could have been done 19 years ago. But they tricked us. They got a hold of our leaders and used our leaders to lead us right back to their courts, knowing that they control their courts. And so the leaders look like they're leading us against an enemy, but when you analyze the struggle that we've been involved in for the past 15 years, the good or the progress that we've made is actually disgraceful, and we should be ashamed to even use the word progress uh, in the context of our struggle. So, uh, there has been a move on, and I, I will conclude in a moment, there has been a move on to keep the Negro thinking in this country that he was making strides in the civil rights field, only for the purpose of distracting him and not letting him know that were he to acquaint himself with the structure of the United Nations and the politics of the United Nations, the aim and the purpose of the United Nations, he could lift his problem into that uh, world body and he'd have the strongest stick in the world that he could use against the racists in Mississippi. But it was known that it was, uh, and one of the arguments against getting you and me to do this has always been that our problem is a domestic problem of the United States. And as such, uh, we should not uh, think to put it at a level where somebody else can come and mess with the United States domestic affairs. But you're giving Uncle Sam a break. Uncle Sam got his hands in the Congo, in Cuba, in, in, in South America, in Saigon. Uncle Sam has got his bloody hands in every continent and in everybody else's business on this earth. But at the same time, when it comes to taking forceful action in this country, where our rights are concerned, he's always going to tell you and me, well, these are state rights. Or he'll make some kind of off-the-wall 
uh, alibi, that's not a, not a bona fide alibi, not because it's an alibi, but to justify his inactivity where human rights are concerned. Though the, we were successful, have been successful, in uh, first when we realized that we had to bring this to the United Nations, we knew that we had to get support, we had to get world support, and that the most logical part of the world to look for support is among people who look just like you and me. And uh, so I was uh, fortunate to be able to make a tour of the African continent during the summer. I uh, went to first in the Middle East and Africa. I went to uh, first to Egypt, then to Arabia, Kuwait, uh, Lebanon, and then to Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanganyika, uh, Zanzibar, Nigeria, uh, Ghana, Guinea, Liberia, and Algeria. Algeria. And then I, and I found, while I was traveling on the African continent, I had already detected it in May, that there, someone had very shrewdly planted the seed of division uh, on this continent to make the Africans not show genuine concern with our problem, just as they plant seeds in your and my mind so that we won't show concern with the African problem. They're trying to make you and me think that the, we're separate and the two problems are separate. So that when I went back this time and traveled to those different countries, I was fortunate enough to uh, spend an hour and a half with NASA in Egypt, which is a, a North African country, and three hours with President Nyeri in uh, Tanganyika, which has now become Tanzania, which is an East African country, and with Prime Minister Obote, Milton Obote in Uganda, which is also an East African country, and with uh, Jomo Kenyatta in Kenya, which is another East African country, and with President Azikwe in Nigeria, uh, President Ikruma in Ghana, and President Kukurei in Guinea. And I found that in every one of these African countries, the head of state is, is genuinely concerned with the problem of the black man in this country, but many of them thought that if they opened their mouth and uh, voiced concern, that they would be insulted by the American Negro leaders. Because uh, one head of state in Asia voiced his support of the civil rights struggle in one of the big, couple of the big six had the audacity to Sabbath face to say they weren't interested in that kind of help, which in my opinion is, is asinine. And so that the African leaders only had to be convinced that if they took an open stand at the governmental level and, and, and showed interest in the problem of black people in this country, that they wouldn't be rebuffed. And today, you'll find in the United Nations, and it's not an accident, that every time the uh, Congo question or anything on the African continent is, is being debated in the Security Council, they couple it with what's going on or what's happening to you and me in Mississippi and Alabama and these other places. And in my opinion, the greatest accomplishment that was made for the, in the uh, struggle of the black man in America in 1964 uh, towards some kind of real progress was the successful link linking together of our problem with the African problem, or making our problem a world problem. Because now, whenever anything happens to you in Mississippi, it's not a case of just somebody in, a, in, in Alabama getting indignant or somebody in New York getting indignant. Whatever happens in Mississippi today, with the attention of the African nations drawn toward Mississippi at a, at a governmental level, then the same repercussions that you see all over the world when, uh, when, 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 uh, when an imperialist or foreign power interferes in some section of Africa, you see repercussions. You see the, the embassy.
everything's being bombed and burned and overturned. Nowadays, when something happens to black people in Mississippi, you will see the same repercussions all over the world. And I wanted to point this out to you because it is important for you to know that when you're in Mississippi, you're not alone. But as long as you think you're alone, then you take a stand as if you're a minority or as if you're outnumbered, and that kind of stand will, will never enable you to win a battle. You've got to know that you've got as much power on your side as that Ku Klux Klan has on its side. And when you know that you've got just as much power on your side as the Klan has on its side, you'll talk the same kind of language with that Klan that that Klan is talking with you. And when I, I, and I say one more thing and then I conclude. When I say the same kind of language, I should explain what I mean. See, you can never have good relations with anybody that you can't communicate with. You can never have good relations with anybody that doesn't understand you. There has to be an understanding. Understanding is brought about through dialogue. Dialogue is communication of ideas. This can only be done in a language, a common language. And you can never talk French to somebody who speaks only German and think you're communicating. Neither, they don't get the point. And you have to be able to speak a man's language in order to make him get the point. Now, you've lived in Mississippi long enough to know what the language of the Ku Klux Klan is. They only know one language. And now you can come up with another language. They don't, you don't communicate. You've got to be able to speak the same language they speak, whether you were in Mississippi, New York City, or Alabama, or California, or anywhere else. And when you develop or mature to the point where you can speak another man's language on his level, that man gets the point. That's the only time he gets the point. You can't talk peace to a person who doesn't know what peace means. You can't talk love to a person who doesn't know what love means. And you can't talk any form of nonviolence to a person who doesn't believe in nonviolence while you're wasting your time.